some of these scripture readings that we have on Sunday mornings uh, kind of scream for explanation. And yet we don't always go there. I know last Sunday, a number of people came up to me and said that parable that we read about the, the dishonest manager, what does that mean? And um, I'm preaching on a different passage this week. I was preaching on a different passage that week. So don't take the time to always explain it, but sometimes the word of God just hits us and we need to dwell on it. We need to meditate on it. We need to think about it. And um, we'll get around to, to preaching on it at some point. But today, the passage in 1 Timothy is one that's going to require a lot of explanation. And if you've been reading ahead and looking at where we're at in 1 Timothy, you, you know what I'm in for. Um, but I'm going to invite you now to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 as we continue this series through this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. We, if you're a guest with us today, we've been, uh, I think this is what, our fourth week maybe here in 1 Timothy. We're, we're working our way through this letter and uh, we arrive now at the second half of chapter 2. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 8 through 15. I want to thank Don and Denise Graham. Uh, they uh, have provided the Bibles that we have in the, in the seats there. Uh, they recognized that uh, some of the old paperback ones we, we had were getting pretty dog-eared. And just it would be better to have something hardbound and, and, and durable uh, for those, those seats. And so I appreciate their generosity in providing that and taking it on as a ministry to make sure that we're continuously supplied with a good source of, of good Bibles there. And so I certainly welcome you to take up one of those Bibles if you don't have one and uh, look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 2. And um, like I said, this is going to be a challenge, uh, but hang in there. Uh, it is good. There is some good insight here. And God's word um, is powerful as the children so uh, wonderfully sang for us this morning. But let me just read, beginning in uh, verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, and do not permit, I'm sorry, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Eve was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us uh, understand your word today. And uh, Lord, help us to, to, to listen carefully, to think carefully, and um, to come humbly before you. Um, we thank you that uh, you, you guide us by your spirit. So, Lord, we seek you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, needless to say, the optics on this passage aren't all that good for the 21st century. Uh, the Apostle Paul did not run this by a focus group before he hit send on this letter. Um, but in all fairness to Paul, 
I also don't think um, he expected his words to be read by people 2,000 years later in a culture like our own. And I'm certain that if Paul were to read our newspapers today, he would also be scratching his head, thinking, what is going on? Uh, he wouldn't know what to do with the term birthing people in place of mothers. Or what would he think of the article that the New York Times ran last month titled, The Maternal Instinct is a Myth Created by Men. This was in the New York Times. The maternal instinct is a myth created by men. The author of the article argues that women generally do not by nature possess a maternal instinct and that the idea that women are more inclined than men to be nurturing of children is a societal construct forced on women by men in order to keep them in subservient roles. And the author claims to have scientific evidence to prove this. I only wonder if these scientists have daughters. But what would Paul think of our world today? I mean, we, we sit in judgment of Paul, but Paul would certainly look at us and say, whoa. I mean, there's a political effort to make sure that all military combat roles be open to women and that women be required to register for the military draft. This is our world we live in today. I mean, we've come a long way. And, and, and by what road? Surely there's been progress. But did we miss something important along the way? And certainly as confusion increases, it's essential that we make clear the foundation on which we stand. And we need to find that foundation in God's word by asking the question, what does God tell us? And that's the task for us today. But before we do that, I don't want us to miss uh, the fact that 1 Timothy chapter 2 is about worship. It's about worshiping in the church. And Paul addresses uh, both men and women. He started out in, in the first part of chapter 2 talking about prayer, talking about the message of salvation. And then he's also going to be speaking here to men. And let's, let's not overlook that fact before we get to this lengthier section about women. First, he says two things to men in verse 8. Let me read it again. He says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The instruction here to men is to pray. Men are told to pray instead of, to, to, to get on with praying instead of quarreling. They were probably arguing about something. I don't know what it was. It, Maybe it wasn't that important. The fact is they were having a fight and they needed to get over it and they needed to replace that fighting with prayer. And certainly this challenge always needs to be made, especially to men. Men be leaders in prayer. I found the best path also to resolving quarrels is prayer. Especially when the, the conflicting parties can join together in prayer. When both sides in a conflict uh, confess faith in Christ, the power of prayer is there and it is the best way to resolve the conflict. So there have been times when there have been people maybe in the church who have had a conflict with one another and I invite them into my office to try and talk about it, to try and resolve it. And if we can end that meeting in prayer... I tell you, the chances of that conflict being resolved are increased uh, dramatically. 
Because when we come to God in prayer, we're all together submitting ourselves to him. And through that mutual submission to God, prayer changes our perspective on the conflicts that we face. Prayer at root is an act of submission to God. And once we get rightly submitted to God, the conflicts and the things that we quarrel about take on a whole different perspective. So the men here in particular are told to pray instead of quarreling. And secondly, they're told to lift holy hands, to lift holy hands. And as I read that this week, it, it kind of struck me personally. I was convicted. I mean, I'm one of those stoic types. You know me, many of you by now. By nature, I'd rather pray and worship without a whole lot of expression. So I've just never been much of the hand-raising type. But maybe I'm stubborn in that regard, and God wants me to loosen up a little bit. Maybe there's something I need to get over here. Maybe there's a word from the Lord for me. So if nothing else, I need to see that it is good to lift up hands in prayer and in praise, even if... It's out of simple obedience to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. But I want us to move now into verses 9 through 15. And in the time that we have here, I want to highlight three guiding principles to help us understand this passage, and then also three points of application. So we got six points to cover in about what looks like 20 minutes' time. So uh, I, I assure you I will move quickly through these points. But the first principle we need to understand as we think about what Paul is saying here regarding women and worship is that the misuse of this scripture has harmed a lot of women. The misuse of this scripture has harmed a lot of women. I know women who are gifted teachers and leaders who have been denied opportunities to apply their giftedness because of the way this passage has been interpreted. Second, it must be extremely frustrating to have a, a God-given gift and to be denied the freedom to exercise that gift. And when that happens, everybody loses. The person with the gift loses the opportunity to serve, and the church loses the opportunity to be blessed when women are denied the opportunity to, to teach and to lead. And I think we also must acknowledge that there are men who use a passage like this to denigrate women and to justify it on religious grounds. It's a form of spiritual abuse, and we need to call it out for what it is. It's an abuse of women, and it is an abuse of God's Word. And this needs to be addressed and acknowledged. So that's our first guiding principle. The misuse of this scripture has harmed a lot of women. Secondly, the second guiding principle I want us to see as we, as we look at this passage is that we cannot give an inch in our commitment to the authority of God's Word. We cannot give an inch in our commitment to the authority of the Bible. This is God's Word. It is our final authority for life. The Apostle Paul was uniquely called, and his words are uniquely inspired. We cannot reduce that fact in any way, no matter how uncomfortable certain things may sound to our ears. So it's fashionable to accommodate the Bible to modern tastes and sensibilities by simply saying that it's outdated, it was from another time, another world, uh, we've, we're enlightened now, we have more important understanding of these things, and so passages like this just get ripped out and thrown away because we know better. That's an error. Such a maneuver makes us the final judge of what is right and wrong, and the Bible becomes nothing more than a relic 
for a museum. And once a church crosses that line, it's over. It collapses morally and spiritually. And we've seen this unfold without exception among the mainline denominations in America and Europe. They're, they're, they're almost euthanizing themselves by failing to take seriously the authority of God's Word. So we do not give an inch in our commitment to the authority of the Bible. Third, our third guiding principle here, and this is going to take a little more time, is that we must follow sound principles of interpretation when we study the Bible. And this is always imperative upon us, but especially when we come to a, a passage like this that is uh, complicated. We've got to follow sound principles of interpretation. This means we can't make assumptions about what the passage means. We can't assume on our, that our first impressions are necessarily going to be accurate. Instead, we've got to consider the context, especially when we come to a passage like this. And that context uh, comes at different levels for us. Uh, on one level, we have what we call the biblical context. And that is, what does the rest of the Bible say on this subject? Um, can we just take one or two verses and, 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 and judge the whole issue based on those? Or do we need to look at what the whole Bible says? And really, the biblical context says, let's take everything into account. Especially what, what the New Testament says. What does the Apostle Paul say elsewhere? And that can help us a lot in gaining a proper perspective. For example, in, in Romans chapter 16, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. And at the very end of that letter, he had sends greetings to numerous acquaintances and friends and, 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 and fellow servants in the ministry. And he says there in chapter 16 of Romans, Send my greetings to Phoebe, a servant or a deacon of the church. He mentions some other women. And then very interestingly, he says, send my greetings to Junia. And he directly refers to her as an apostle. Fascinating. The role of an apostle is a teaching ministry. It's a teaching with authority. It's a, it's a ministry that has authority. And there's no getting around that fact. Now, some have argued that, well, Junia must have been a man's name. But that just doesn't fit. Junia is clearly the name of a woman. And she's serving in Rome as an apostle, a teacher. And Paul is commending her, greeting her. We find similar examples in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Now, they're laboring side by side, serving together in the gospel, in the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. One more example comes from the book of Corinthians. Paul writes to the church in Corinth there about women uh, prophesying. And there's a lot that's confusing here. I can't get into all the details now. But in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, 5, Paul says that a wife who prophesies should have her head covered or else she dishonors her husband. And some look at that and say all they see is the issue about the head covering and dishonoring the husband. But don't miss the fact that a woman is prophesying. In the church. And the, word, the concept of prophesying very much is like a preaching, a proclaiming of God's word. It's a public proclamation of God's word. So, so clearly he's, he's giving instructions for how women should be prophesying in the church. More examples than I can give, but there's just a few of the greater biblical context of what is being taught about the roles of women in the church. Um, this should lead us to see that Paul 
may have had a specific reason why he says what he says to Timothy regarding the church in Ephesus. Why would he say these things? Well, now we come to what we call the, the, the uh, local context or the, the, the cultural context within Ephesus itself, where Paul writes these instructions. It appears from what we know of history, as well as some other things we read in First and Second Timothy, that there was a unique problem in Ephesus um, while Timothy was there. And what we do know from history is that Ephesus was the center of a, of a cult following of the Greek goddess Artemis, or the Romans called her Diana. The Temple of Artemis once stood in Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was twice as big as the Parthenon in Athens. It was huge. So the, the worship of Artemis was a big deal in Ephesus. And most of the beliefs and the practices of that cult have been lost to history, but there is a, 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 certainly a sense we get that there was a cloud of confusion among the people of that city at that time as this old religion of Artemis meets the good news of Jesus. And how are these things going to come together? And, and, and Paul's confronting those old ways and, and he tells the men to stop arguing and to step up into prayer. And he instructs women to take time to study and to learn the truth about Jesus in place of learning these old ways. And understand that the worship of Artemis uh, could also help explain the instructions about modesty and the fancy clothing. The cult of Artemis was likely encouraging immodesty and ostentatious shows of fine clothing and jewelry and hairstyles. And so Paul directly wants to challenge that by encouraging the modesty among those who follow Jesus. And perhaps most interesting of all, as we look at kind of the local context here, is that this call of Artemis might help explain the puzzle in verse 15. If you were following along as I read it earlier, you might have noticed this is a really strange, sounds very strange to our ears. Paul says, yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What does that mean? I mean, we read that and we think, does this mean that women gain eternal life by having babies? That's kind of what it sounds like. But that doesn't make sense. That doesn't fit anything else we know from what the Bible teaches. So what does it mean? Interestingly, this cult of Artemis was closely associated with childbirth. It was believed that the worship of Artemis would help bring a woman safely through childbirth. So making this link, N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, translates verse 15 in this way. He says, she will be kept safe through the process of childbirth. In other words, faith in Jesus, not worshiping Artemis, is what helps women through this struggle of giving birth. Jesus saves her from death. He keeps her safe. So what at first might seem very odd to us the idea that women might be saved by having babies doesn't mean that at all. And so deliverance comes from the one true God, not from the local deity. And as we start to put this stuff together, and I realize most of us don't have access to the information and the tools and the background to, to, to kind of understand all of this. It, it's important for us to see that God's word is truthful. It is reliable. It is authoritative. We just need to understand it in its proper way. And there's a lot more that can be said regarding all of this. Um, and if you want to go deeper into it with me, I'd be glad to have a conversation with you, meet with you, email me. 
um, I'd, I'd be glad to do that. But I want us to move forward now with some application. Um, what, what are some ways in which we can, if, if we're saying this was pretty specific to the situation there at that time, what does it say to us now today? Three short points of application. Number one, allowing women to teach and have authority in the church does not reduce the God-ordained distinction between men and women. Allowing women to teach and have authority in the church does not reduce the God-ordained distinction between men and women. Men and women share all kinds of characteristics and responsibilities while remaining different in many ways. So allowing women to teach and lead does not hinder God's design for masculinity and femininity. Men who teach and lead will teach and lead in distinctly masculine ways. And that is good. And women who teach and lead will teach and lead in distinctly feminine ways. And that is good. The variety is a strength, not a weakness. In other words, women don't need to act like men in order to be good teachers or good leaders and vice versa. We will all be wiser and richer in our understanding when we can be taught by both men and women. And I've got, I have been greatly blessed by gifted women Preachers and leaders, and so I think we need more, not less. Second, we need pastors and teachers in the local church who are trained to rightly interpret God's Word and to apply it to life today. As I said a few weeks ago, we need to counter the trend to downgrade pastoral education. These are complicated times, and we need leaders and teachers with understanding and discernment and wisdom and that certainly education alone won't get us there, but it sure helps avoid the many pitfalls that congregations can fall into if the scriptures are not rightly interpreted. Those who teach and preach need to be grounded. They need to understand how to rightly interpret and apply the scriptures. They need to know theology. They need to be able to connect it to contemporary life. And this is a fundamental uh, truth about Christianity itself. In fact, it's right here in this text, verse 11. We, we miss it because we see the prohibition instead of the, the instruction. But verse 11 says, let a woman learn. Let a woman learn. God encourages education. And when it talks about in quietness and with submissiveness, it's, it's probably focusing more on let them learn undisturbed, uh, without distraction. So the importance of education is clear. Third, an application, none of this will work until we each submit ourselves fully to God. None of this will work until we each submit ourselves fully to God. So clearly the answer here isn't to say that women must submit to men. At the same time, the answer isn't to say that all submission must go out the window. The opposite is true. The truth here is that we are all called to submit, and we are all called to submit to God. Ephesians 5.21 also says, Submit yourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. And of course, the world's always going to struggle with this idea. But when we know the gospel, when we have submitted ourselves to Jesus, when we live in the freedom that he brings, this is no longer a problem. 
We will quarrel, we will struggle with anger, we will be unsettled in our identity and in our ability to work together as men and women until we come to the place of being fully submitted to God. Notice that that word submission is only used once in this passage. It's in verse 11 as well, where he says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And most just assume Paul means submissiveness to men, but it doesn't say that. Again, I refer to N.T. Wright. He uh, in, translates that passage, They must allow, be allowed to study undisturbed in full submission to God. That little phrase to God isn't in the text either, but it certainly fits contextually with everything else we know. And there is this reality in which we all then need to submit ourselves to God. And, then, and in doing so, this starts to all make more sense. Um, some will think this, that I'm being naive. But I believe that if we understand and embrace the good news of the gospel, and if we are all, as men and women, rightly submitted to God, then I don't think we're going to struggle with these issues. And by His grace, He'll lead us forward. Gracious Father, I thank You for Your Word and its truth, and I pray that You would help us um, overcome the problems of the past as well as the problems of the present because there is so much confusion about understanding what is masculine and feminine and how you've created us. But Lord, we know that the truth is found as we submit ourselves to you. So Lord, guide us, we pray, by your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.